Piecing together the life of an addict is hard. As addiction reaches a certain level, a once stable life begins to fray at the seams. Everything becomes delicate, unbalanced, insecure. It's lonely, difficult to track. They're never in one place for too long. The people around them are always new and hardly reliable. For a journalist, this means that most information comes in tiny flashes, fragments of time collected in an effort to develop a fuller picture. Each day, each week that passes in an addict's life is fast and fleeting. It's only before the descent, when the hope springs eternal, and after, when the grip of addiction has loosened, that the pace slows down enough to dig deeper. Since the death of her youngest son, Sean, such moments of reflection, which were once scarce, have been piling up for Marianne Sinisi. To me, gardening is probably one of the only things that have kept me from losing my mind for all these years, is no matter how stressed out, I could go out there, I could chop something to bits if I wanted to. I could sit and look at the beauty of something. I could dig in the dirt, rearrange things, and have it be the way I wanted when I couldn't have control of anything else in my life. Since the 1990s, the Sinisis have lived in the same house, in the same town, on the same suburban street called Maple Avenue in what can only be described as an ordinary house that Marianne took extraordinary care to make whimsical. She painted her front door lime green, built a fence in the garden with planters and wind chimes, scattered little places to sit around the yard with benches and arches to enjoy what she created. Before the grief, before the addiction, before Jerry Sandusky, there was the garden. But as clouds gathered overhead on the morning of Sean's memorial in 2018, Marianne felt tense. It started to rain that morning and I was thinking, oh God, why couldn't it have just been a nice day? The weather felt like an omen. Just a few days prior, Marianne had given her family the news that she and her husband, Mike, did not want to have a funeral of any kind for Sean, not even the event that was about to take place. It was just too painful for both of us. We just couldn't imagine doing that. I didn't want to be put through all of that. From their perspective, the experiences of Sean's brief life and the emotions surrounding his tragic death were moments that they were not ready to relive. But not everyone in the family felt the same way. Sean's siblings and some of the larger family wanted a service to grieve and to celebrate the Sean that they wanted to remember. There were so many memories. Sean was an addict, but that wasn't all he was. Marianne remembered the garden. I said, as I sit on this deck and I look down over the yard and stuff, Sean loved this house. He joked all the time, said that he was going to put us in an old age home and this would be his house. And when we'd say anything, I'd say at, at the house or at my, he goes, oh, no, you mean my house. And I say, yeah, your house. And I just said, you know, if that's what they want, I will agree to do something, but I want to do it right here. This is the place he loved the best. And so, a few days later, the family came together to share their favorite stories and to perhaps provide some dignity in death to a man who did not often experience it in life. 
He was always happy, you know, always laughing, smiling. That's his brother, Josh. He used to call the UPS man the UE Pest Man. So, like, that would always make us laugh. Anytime there was a package outside, he'd be like, the, the UE Pest Man's here, the UE Pest Man. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? He was definitely a very happy kid um, into sports and mostly, like, outdoor stuff, though. Like, more of, like, the ATVs and, like, the fishing and hunting and doing that kind of stuff. He always loved to be outside. I'd have to make him come in, but Josh would be ready to come in. He liked to be indoors much more and play video games where that wasn't Sean. He was always outside and didn't really have the focus to want to sit and watch TV or he always wanted to do something. We grew up together. I mean, we're basically at one point as close as brothers can be. That's Sean's cousin, Nick. I mean, our parents hung out every, basically every Friday to Saturday night. Um, So we did spend a lot of time together. He would stay over on Saturday night and we would go to church on Sunday. Uh, My dad would take us to Galactic Ice to go ice skating. After that, we went to Donut Connection to get donuts and gumballs. (laughs) He was just like the happiest go lucky kid in the neighborhood. He was young. That's Sean's dad, Mike. He had to be a part of everything. He had to know everybody in the neighborhood, and he was super friendly. With Sean, everything was always exciting. Tim Kleiner, one of the Sinisi's neighbors, remembers when his kids thought Christmas tree shopping was too boring. They adopted Sean for the day, and they took him along instead. I think we ended up going to probably like four or five different places, but it was going on longer and longer. And I think we ended up going in probably like a 50 square mile area. You know, with Sean, just his temperament and everything that way, he didn't care if we went to like eight or 10 of them. He was just happy and content the whole time. So everybody just enjoyed his his his, his um, company and everything and he, you know even the guys at work got to know him and i was a professional firefighter and even the guys in at work took to sean i mean sean just had that personality and that personality earned him a nickname called him the mayor of maple avenue he's laughing smiling i mean they called him like the mayor of maple avenue whatever my neighbor tim called him We always said he was like the mayor of Maple Avenue. We had a t-shirt made up for him because he just flitted from house to house with the people in the neighborhood, always trying to help people with something. So always knew everybody's business, what was going on in a positive way because everybody enjoyed having him around and would share things with him. Everybody knew Sean and he was like that ultimate boy next door. From Advanced Local and Meadowlark Media, I'm Sarah Gannam. This is the mayor of Maple Avenue. Chapter 1 The Sinisis were the typical 1990s working-class family in small-town Pennsylvania when Rust Belt small towns were still a really great place to be. They settled in a town called Altoona, surrounded by a lot of family and lots of other working-class folks like themselves, and they were comfortable and happy. Marianne said she tried to keep the house looking different, but the family inside was as normal as it gets. Mike drove a truck, she cleaned houses, and they had two sons, Josh and Sean. She surprised herself a little bit at how much she enjoyed having two boys. 
my husband really wanted to have children. And I was actually a little reluctant to have children. Marianne had been reluctant because at 16 years old, she gave up a baby girl for adoption. So having children for me was something that I thought I shouldn't do because I was guess in my own mind, I was sort of maybe punishing myself for giving her up. But, um, you know, after we got married and were married for at least probably a year or more, he really, really wanted children. So he persuaded me to go ahead and get pregnant. So we had our first child, which was Josh. Josh was an extremely active kid. Four years later, in 1992, came Sean. In those days, Marianne never felt like she had to worry about Sean. It was Josh who had been diagnosed with ADHD and was catching all of the attention. We had been working with a counselor on that to help, you know, have the family be a little more united. Because of the different personalities of the kids, the challenges involved in Josh's ADHD and Mike's long hours as a truck driver, Marianne was overwhelmed. The counselor at one point had suggested to get involved with this second mile program because she felt like it would be good for both of them and it would also be good for for my husband and I so that we could have a a little bit of a break. The counselor suggested the boys attend summer camps at a place called the Second Mile. The organization founded in 1977 by beloved Penn State assistant coach Jerry Sandusky. The program provided support for underprivileged and at-risk youth in Pennsylvania. Marianne first dropped off her boys for a week-long camp in July of 2000. Josh was 12. Sean was only 8. He was pretty young, and that, you know, I was, believe me, I was a nervous wreck because I kept thinking, oh my gosh, should we be doing this? But she kept saying, no, you need this too, because it's, you know, you just have this constant, you know, kids all the time, you don't get a break. And like I said, the the ADHD was, was not easy. And, you know, she just felt that it would be good for all of us. By all accounts, Josh and Sean had a great time that first summer. And so they went back again for the next. At the end of the 2001 camp, Sean was awarded Most Supportive, Leader of the Pack, and the Team Spirit Awards by his counselor. He was also given another for being the best pool buddy. It was pretty quick that he sort of singled us out and got in touch with us to participate in one of his fundraiser dinners. Not long after that 2001 summer camp, Mike and Marianne got a phone call from Jerry Sandusky himself, inviting them to be his personal guests at one of his major fundraisers, a casino night gala where the top prize was a $20,000 check. And that was like a $200 dinner that we would have never been able to go. And he said, oh, you don't have to worry about the cost. No, you just come. We kind of felt a little flattered to go. The gala was in early November 2001. Mike and Marianne attended the dinner as his guests. The program listed the evening speaker as Joshua and Sean Sinisi with Jerry Sandusky. The local paper even took a picture of the boys. They felt like celebrities. I mean, it felt good, though, obviously, to be singled out. And I just looked at it as I was actually special. Sean was special. What the Sinisis did not know, what nobody knew at the time, was that the second mile, with all of its charitable ambitions, 
was actually a facade, an elaborate ruse concealing Jerry Sandusky's true intentions. The second mile has done so much good for so many people, myself included. And I know it's very difficult to wrap our heads around how an organization so good as the second mile can be run by a man who's uh, being accused of being a serial pedophile. When he was arrested, prosecutors alleged that Sandusky built the second mile for the sole purpose of grooming young boys, convincing their parents and the larger community that he was a do-gooder, helping disadvantaged kids, when really he was targeting the most vulnerable victims. Second mile, no matter what its purported purpose, was for the defendant a victim factory, an assembly line for adolescent children to be abused, sodomized, anally raped by this defendant. Sandusky had the perfect setup. His charity was connected to a community primed for his targeting, and his position was protected by a football program that had achieved almost mythological status. Yeah, I think Penn State was one of the first places to have tons of signs. Uh, I, I feel that it's the best atmosphere, big game atmosphere that there is uh, in the country. Tomorrow morning, we'll see exactly what, uh, what Happy Valley brings to the table. So we're excited about this. Penn State University sits almost smack dab in the middle of Pennsylvania, in a town called State College, in a place known as Happy Valley. Being part of Happy Valley is not just about football culture or fan pride. It's more like a state of mind. Second and four. Clifford, left side, has a man open, touchdown Penn State, and who else? Jahan Dotson. And anyone who has been to Penn State's campus knows that when you're there, it's easy to get caught up in the hoorah around you. Everyone's livelihood is tied to the university. Everyone's always patting each other on the back. When you're there, you feel transported to a place where the outside world doesn't seem to penetrate. And in a way, it doesn't. The Appalachian Mountains create a physical barrier that has allowed Penn State to isolate itself for many years. The university is wedged into a valley created by Mount Nittany. It's not easy to get there. It's three hours from any major city, and there's really just one road in and one road out. It's isolated in another way, too. Central Pennsylvania is an interesting place, demographically. That infamous James Carville quote about Pennsylvania being Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama in the middle? That's true, with one exception, Happy Valley. The university is very much its own bubble, a wealthy oasis in the middle of the Rust Belt. And it was in the shadow of this bubble in Altoona, Pennsylvania, that Marianne Sinisi and her husband Mike were raising their boys. By the mid to late 2000s, towns outside of this bubble, towns like Altoona, were succumbing to the ills of an economic downturn, and at the same time, a budding prescription drug crisis. As a Rust Belt city in decline, with lots of people out of work or doing manual labor, many Altoona residents were getting pain prescriptions. Like so many other places, those prescriptions were heavily abused, and opioid medications were being sold because they were so popular. It provided Sandusky with an opening. 
He often targeted children from single-family homes or boys whose parents had addiction issues or criminal records. And while the Sinisis didn't fit those descriptions, they were vulnerable. I would have to say that we were targeted, I think. I know that we weren't, like some of the families, the more single parents and stuff. You know, we had each other and had the boys together and stuff, and we're still a family unit, but we didn't have the money to pay for vacations and stuff in his football camps that he did. Even though they were just miles away from Happy Valley, kids like Sean and Josh could never have dreamed of going to a Penn State football game, let alone an expensive summer camp. Throw in a jersey, a day of play on the field, access to a big star like Sandusky. It was really appealing. So when the counselor originally recommended the second mile, of course the Sinisi boys were excited. Soon, the boys began to get regular invites from Sandusky to go with him to football games at Penn State or the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then in the summer of 2002, he extended another invitation. Instead of returning to his second mile camps, he invited the boys to attend his football camps. Those camps cost $500 per kid and would have been way out of the Sinisi's budget. And I said, well, I'm sorry. It's, you know, it's great. I'm, I'm glad you thought of us, but we can't afford that. And he goes, oh, no, no, your, your kids will go for nothing. It's fine. And you can bring them to me. And so we, we would typically drop them to his home. And then he would drive down. I don't know how, whether he had a team of guys or vans or what, but he always had counselors and whatnot. So, yeah, we trusted and took them. And the football camps kind of just made me laugh because Sean was so young and Josh wasn't a football player. He was more interested in soccer for the most part, but he wanted to go because Jerry really bragged them up and he just convinced us that it was a good thing to do. This relationship between Sandusky and Josh would last through high school. Sandusky became a mentor, a father figure, the kind of person Marianne would call when she needed help getting her son back on track. But that was not the case with Sean. Unlike his brother, Sean's interest in anything related to Sandusky came to an abrupt end in the middle of one of the sleepaway football camps he was attending with his brother in the summer of 2004. Sean was going into the seventh grade. He was 12 years old. And that's the one where they did not share a dorm. After four years of attending various Sandusky camps and bunking together, the brothers were not allowed to share a room this time. Jerry had told me that that wasn't possible because he actually had asked Josh if he could help be a coach. And that would mean he had to be in the other dorms with the other coaches. I was not roomed with John, though. I mean, Jerry put me away from him. I think it was only a day, maybe two. And we got the call from Sean. He didn't want to stay. He wanted to come home. Sean called home and begged Marianne and Mike to come get him. We were very shocked uh, because I knew that wasn't Sean. It wasn't Sean in any sense of his being because he was the mayor of Maple Avenue and he was happy-go-lucky. And 
he looked forward to doing the camps and going to the second mile and everything. And so when we got that call, I thought some, something's not right because it's not, it's not Sean. And did he say why? No, he did not. I mean, he just kept saying, he, you know, I tried talking him into staying because, like I said, it was like a three-hour drive for us. And that wasn't his typical, he'd spend the night anywhere. He was Mr. Social. I mean, we sort of just thought, you know, he's not the greatest at sports. Maybe he's just not really into it because he's separate from Josh. But we still tried to persuade him to stay. But he just insisted that he, he wanted to come home. He kept saying he was homesick. He wanted to come home, which, again, we thought was an odd statement because that kid would go anywhere. Did he sound upset when he called you? Was he, like, emotional at all? He was convincing convincing enough that we decided we needed to go. So we got ourselves together and we made the trip down to pick him up. And I remember when we got there, not really thinking a whole lot of it. But in hindsight, I thought now I'm looking back and think how strange it was that they were all out on the field practicing. They kind of just didn't really stop the practice, but Jerry came across the field and he put his hands up in the air and said, I tried to convince him to stay, but he won't. He can show you where his stuff is. Sandusky went back to practice and left Mike and Marianne alone with Sean. We tried talking to him a little bit there and he said no, he was definitely coming home. He was homesick and... So we packed his stuff up and, you know, said goodbye to Josh, that we'd see him in a few days and took the trip home. Sean didn't say much to his parents on the car ride home. Once he got in the car, uh, he got he was in the back seat, and I asked him, what was the matter? I said, what's the matter, Sean? What, what happened? He said, nothing, Dad. I just, I was just, I just felt homesick. I, I just wanted to come home. I missed you guys. You know... Excuse me. You know, it, it just didn't make sense to me whatsoever. It wasn't long before Mike and Marianne started to notice behavioral changes in their normally easygoing kid. Sean's friend circle abruptly changed in a bad way. People that I'd be like, no, they're bad. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go near them. You know what I mean? Um, just because of maybe the rumors and stuff about drugs or just drinking underage and doing more than reckless teenager things, like just taking it a little too close to the line for my liking. But he sort of started to hang out with those people and broke away from his friends that were definitely more positive. They caught him with cigarettes and then alcohol. Marianne was surprised. This wasn't something that they had gone through with their older son, Josh. So she and Mike grounded Sean as a punishment. But by age 14, as Sean started high school, they were starting to become genuinely concerned about his emotional state. The terrible mood swings that we'd think, why? I mean, there was a time where he was so angry that he punched a hole in his wall in his bedroom, which was so not him, because he never had a temper. I mean, of all the things that, you know, Josh had the temper because of the the ADHD, but Sean did not have the temper, and he was so forgiving. I mean, it was really disheartening to see the change in him. And, and he, I think he felt real remorse. And he would write you the letter and how sorry he was and he didn't know what happened to him and why he did that. And then you would think everything is okay. And it's going back to normal and, you know, you just, the, the grounding is over and y- you move on. And then until the next thing would happen, you know, then there was a time that he 
actually broke then the window in his bedroom. And I just, I just, you know, we were just dumbfounded. Like, what is going on here? So I did start getting him to go for some counseling, and he he'd go, and you know, he kind of balked at it because he just would be like, "Well, it's just, it's just a waste of time." And I don't know if that's because I had to drag him to all the stuff before with his brother or if it's just that he just was so locked down at that point that he wasn't open to it that eventually the counselor just said to me look he's a good kid he knows right from wrong he's either gonna walk down the street like he should or he's gonna go down the alley sean went down the alley his grades in school plummeted. His parents didn't know it at the time, but he transitioned from alcohol to prescription pills. It was easy for him to get his hands on those pills. They were readily available. He was downing benzos and oxycodone that he could get off kids who were swiping them from their parents' medicine cabinets. Marianne told me even parents were dealing pills themselves. That's how much of a grip the crisis had on their town. By 15 years old, Sean was using hardcore drugs. By 18, he had started using heroin. He was still successfully hiding his drug abuse from his parents, who didn't find out for years. But he couldn't hide everything. When was the turning point in which you realized, this is really bad, this is not teenage experimentation or a little bit of rebellion, like that he's going down a path from which he's going to need serious help. Senior year, that's that's when it really, like, wow. That, that really just was, it was a struggle because he just was so different and didn't seem to care about school at all. He even talked of dropping out, and we kept saying, you're not doing that. Sean's senior year was tumultuous outside the classroom, too. In the spring of 2010, months before he was supposed to graduate, he was arrested for having marijuana while hanging out at the local shopping mall. And he didn't seem to think that it was much of a big deal that, you know, everybody does it. And it helps me. Was it a big deal to you? Oh, yeah. It was a big deal to us. We were, I know it's not a big deal now. You know, they're legalizing it. But to us, it was just not him. He didn't need a substance to be happy. And this was just such a, a different person. She was desperate. She didn't understand what was happening. Sean wasn't talking about it. The counselor had failed. Her last resort was to turn to the person who she turned to when she was having trouble connecting to her older son, Josh. And that was Jerry Sandusky. After all, Sandusky was still a hero in the Sinisi household. He was the one who had helped Josh get a scholarship to go to college. He was the guy who seemed to be able to step in and make things right when Marianne couldn't. And, you know, he did. It, it it would work. Josh would get picked up. You know, his spirits were, you know, I can do this. But when Sean was failing senior year, and it was just turmoil, and I said, I called him and said, do you think you can call Sean? And he just said, well, you know, I, I don't know if he'll listen to me. And I just said, but I have to, I have to try, Jerry. I mean, we're, we're losing him. He said, well, I don't even have his number. I said, well, I'll give it to you. He said, well, I, I can't promise you, but I'll try. Jerry called me back pretty quickly, and he said, I, I'm sorry, I tried, but he just won't talk to me. 
and that was it. So I, I don't even know to this day if, if if he actually did, if he ever even really called him. Yeah, yeah, because Sean and I never talked about it. He just didn't really want to talk about him. You know, after that camp that he came home from, he really didn't have a relationship, and he didn't talk about him. He didn't go to anything anymore. It was like he just didn't exist for him. Josh and Sean had always been different kids. But as 2010 wore on, their paths kept pulling further and further in opposite directions. Josh had graduated from college and was working. He was the poster child for what Sandusky and the Second Mile could do. And in gratitude, he was giving quotes to the local paper, the Altoona Mirror, praising Jerry Sandusky as Sandusky announced his retirement from the Second Mile charity in September of 2010. He told the paper that Sandusky provided an enormous amount of time and effort into making sure I grew up into the successful young man I am today. Josh told the newspaper that Sandusky was his mentor and described him as kind, loving, caring, generous, strong, positive, successful. And Marianne followed up with quotes of her own, saying, Jerry Sandusky is the definition of a great man. Whatever you ask him to do or be there for you, he will do it without any hesitation. Jerry is, well, Jerry, one of a kind. And this is where my world and Marianne's and Sean's and Sandusky's were all orbiting around each other in ways we wouldn't understand for years. In the fall of 2010, I was a young journalist working in central Pennsylvania, working on a story about the grand jury investigation into Sandusky. A teenager from several towns over had been testifying about years of prolonged sexual abuse at the hands of Happy Valley's community hero. Sandusky's retirement, it turned out, was forced, and the article that Josh and Marianne were quoted in, defending Sandusky, That was a case of some good old-fashioned spin. It was a somewhat successful attempt to keep hush-hush the fact that Jerry Sandusky was under investigation. Meanwhile, Sean kept getting into more and more trouble. And the charges were getting more and more serious. After that drug charge in the spring, Sean was arrested two more times on much more serious counts. It was... A very, very dark period, as if he wasn't slipping enough and just experimenting. In October of 2010, 18-year-old Sean was charged with rape. His accuser was a 17-year-old girl he knew. The incident happened at a house party four months earlier. Sean was adamant that it was consensual, but both he and the victim were drunk. And Pennsylvania law states that you cannot consent when you're under the influence of alcohol. After nearly a year of fighting the charges, all of them were dropped except for one summary citation for disorderly conduct. And eventually, all of the charges would be expunged from Sean's record, meaning if you go looking for them now, you will not find any mention or evidence of them. I only know about these charges because Marianne was honest and shared the documents with me. I tried to find the woman who made this accusation against Sean, but tracking her down proved difficult, and I never reached anyone with her name. Sean was arrested again in December of 2010, this time for theft. 
That charge, too, would eventually be dismissed and expunged. I'm not here to relitigate these charges that the court ultimately took off of Sean's record, or to absolve him of anything either. No matter how these charges had played out, the very existence of them and the accusations leveled against Sean had a massive impact on the Sinisi family. Marianne and Mike couldn't seem to figure out what was going on with their son, why he always seemed to slip further away the harder they tried to reach him. My first story about the investigation came out in March of 2011. It was big news in central Pennsylvania. But at this point, it was all allegations. There were no charges. The public didn't have details of exactly what was being said to the grand jury. After his retirement, many people still saw Sandusky as the selfless, caring, magnanimous man. A man who gave up his coaching career to help kids. There were people who simply did not believe these allegations could be true. Among them, Marianne and Josh. At that point, Marianne was caught somewhere between denial and disbelief. Here was the man who had done so much good for her older son, Josh. How could he possibly be abusing children? At this point, things had gotten so bad, she and Mike had resorted to tough love and kicked Sean out of the house. He was hopping around from place to place making money by selling dope. So it might not have been a surprise for Sean to hear that a drug cop was looking for him. The call came in to Marianne's house. She texted Sean and told him he could come home and have some privacy for the meeting. The cop's name was Anthony Sassano. Sassano had spent most of his career on high-profile drug cases. Not cartels, per se, but regional drug rings with a lot of people and moving parts. But that's not what Sassano wanted to talk about with Sean. Sassano had been given a different kind of assignment, the investigation of Jerry Sandusky. Sassano had a list of second-mile kids who were close to Sandusky, and he was reaching out to all of them. Marianne remembers that it was a nice late spring day. It was starting to get warmer. They had just opened the pool for the summer. She left to go flower shopping to give Sean some privacy. Susano sat with Sean on the front porch in front of the lime green front door, and they just talked for a good hour. When Marianne returned, Susano told her that Sean said nothing happened. Disclosure of childhood sexual violence is not the norm. Right. Jennifer Storm is a longtime advocate who has worked for state prosecutors. She's a victim herself, and she worked with Sandusky victims, so she has an intimate knowledge of this case. I've spoke to some of these survivors. I, I remember them saying, I wasn't about to talk to this guy. I wasn't going to disclose to this person. It's probably a case study in what not to do in terms of garnering cooperation. And listen, they didn't have trained, appropriate investigators. And they did what we often see investigators do with people with substance use disorders is they send in the drug cops because they know those those people have information that they want and they manipulate it using their addiction and then they get what they need out of them. So of course they were going to send the drug cop in because that's the biggest threat. That's the fear. So they tried to use fear as a tactic for disclosure and all it did was their hypervigilance was, was, you know, 150% activated. They were scared. 
all their trauma started coming back up because now somebody knew, right? Somebody knew and and the person they hated the most, right? In Sean's instance, the guy that, that can put them in jail now knows this. What does he want from me? These were young boys. When you are a child and you are being victimized, there is an incredible amount of shame, uh, a lack of understanding and guilt. And so that's all the stuff that you as the victim are feeling. Layer on top that your offender knows that and your offender is speaking directly to those emotional pockets that you have and is using them to groom you, is using them to silence you and is using them to threaten you. A drug cop knocking on your door is going to put every guard up that you have, every wall up that you have. And then they're, then they're going to try to come and say, oh, but we want to talk to you about this other thing. And they expected them to be kind and to just disclose this information. It's unrealistic. And it's actually, they could have probably, they probably did more harm than good to these survivors. And I mean, it eventually worked, but I mean, how many times did those guys slam doors in investigators' faces and, and went and sought out their own attorneys because they needed help? They were scared. And there's another layer to Sean's initial denial. Why would anybody believe him? I mean... Who's Sean? He's, he's somebody that's just using drugs and getting in trouble. So who would ever believe that coming from him? At this point in his life, at this point, you and Josh are staunchly defending Jerry Sandusky. That does still break my heart. Because I feel like I should have not been such a defender to such a monster. And then maybe he would have felt comfortable telling us. And I'm sure that he was very tormented by that, thinking that his own family maybe wouldn't believe him if he said it. In November of 2011, the grand jury handed down its indictment of Jerry Sandusky. Now, Sandusky was charged on Saturday with 40 counts of sexual abuse. He maintains his innocence. Are you sexually attracted to young boys, to underage boys? If I say... No, I'm not attracted to boys. That's not the truth because I'm attracted to young people, boys, girls. I enjoy spending time with young people. I enjoy spending time with people. I can remember exactly where I was when I heard. When they called me, they really caught me off guard. I was out in my garden cleaning up, doing fall cleanup, and I got the phone call from the Altoona Mirror saying that. And I just was like, no. I went like into total denial. That's not true. There's no way this man could have done that and probably stayed that way for for a while anyway. The local newspaper, the Altoona Mirror, broke the news of Sandusky's arrest to Marianne. Both she and Josh were quoted in the next day's paper defending Jerry Sandusky again. She said, I don't believe it. I think he is a good man, and they are railroading him. And Josh was quoted saying, I don't think it is true at all. It makes me pretty upset. I don't understand it. I just went to a Penn State game with him a few weeks ago. I think it is ridiculous. I don't believe the charges are true at all. When you said, I don't believe it, I think he's a good man, and they're railroading him, what was the context in which you were looking at this man? Was it the lens of what he had done for Josh? Like you were looking at him through that lens of the benefactor that he was to your family? Absolutely. 
offering to pay for all the stuff that he did, the camps, just even the, the, you know, the, the psychologist that referred us said what a great man he was and how he'd adopted all these children. And so I was just basing it, I guess, on that. And the other factor was at that point, Sean had already started to get into some trouble. So I saw the judicial system as not so fair in my eyes, I guess. So it was kind of like, nah, this can't be. Denial, total denial. At this point, Sean had never said a single negative word about Sandusky to his parents or his brother. But Marianne looked at her two boys, one on the path to a successful life and the other spiraling out of control. And she couldn't help but wonder why the mayor of Mabel Avenue went to camp that year and came back a different person. We did question him, both of them, when it hit then because... That same psychologist who referred us had called me like pretty much the day after Jerry, well, a couple of days after, and said, I am so sorry that I ever got you two or those two involved with this man. Then I was still in somewhat of denial when she called and I said, so you believe it? Because I, I wanted confirmation from somebody that I felt like was a lot smarter than I was. And, and she said, yes, Marianne, I absolutely believe it. And I just feel horrible that those two were caught up in this. Wow. Yeah. So. It wasn't easy for Marianne or Josh to accept the truth about Sandusky, to reimagine the man who had done so much good for their family as the monster they were learning him to be. When I first saw it, I think part of me was just, and this is just what's wrong with society nowadays, myself included, not. So I think when it started happening, I was just like, oh, okay, there's no way that this happened. People just want money. You know what I mean? This amazing man who everybody looks up to and Penn State football, which I was huge into taking me to all these games, Eagles games and, you know, meeting players, Steelers games, like all that stuff, buying me, you know, things and spending one-on-one time with like me and like Sean. And I just looked at it, you know, as that I, I was happy, you know what I mean? Like I didn't really think about why, or there were times that, you know, that, I mean, not that I want to give the man credit at, at, at all, but there was a point where I was going to quit college and he egged me on and talked to me and got me through it. So looking back on it still, like, I'm just so unbelievably angry at him for being that kind of a person and doing that sort of thing, to, like this way for one and then being a monster on the other side. But even for a Sandusky sympathizer like Josh, reading the details of the grand jury report left little room for a defense of his one-time mentor. The more and more you paid attention to what was being done and what was being said and the amount of people coming out about repeating the same sort of situations all in a same similar area at the second mile and doing certain things. Josh started to look back with a more critical eye and remember. Putting the hand on the laps and stuff and like I could I could see now as an adult like that it was attempts like he would tickle us and stuff like and wrestle with us like on like a bed or on the floor like that was a little bit odd it shouldn't have happened that way and like it wasn't playful he was great at being a monster essentially yeah because he made the people like me who are successful in doing things like you know with their lives and try to defend that and be like no there's no way this person could have and then there's people that are unfortunately on the flip side that 
are already looked upon by society that all oh, their fuck ups or their wastes of life, which and all this other stuff, and they're just bums and they're the ones saying this. So who are you going to believe somebody on this side or this side? And I think he meant to do that. And that's probably why he chose his targets the way that he did it. Josh burned everything he owned that came from Sandusky, every jersey, every gift. I felt just like disgusted that I even had possession of it, despite no matter what it was, you know, articles that I wrote about or, you know, that we were in the paper together or any medals, anything like that. I just, anything, pictures with him, everything. I just, I, we burned them, I think. He did do good things for Josh. I mean, do you separate that time period in your mind at all? I mean, when you look back on it, do you separate the good he did for one son from the bad that he did for the other son? I would like to say I could do that, but I can't because I just see it as an evil manipulation of both of them. I mean, I think he just knew which one he could manipulate and the other one he felt like he was doing good for. So he could play him and use the other one. So now I I see it as very calculating and evil at this point. After Sandusky was arrested and charged, Central Pennsylvania was consumed by the story. The media frenzy was like something out of a movie. A constant conversation buzzed about the details about what Sandusky had been accused of doing to kids like Sean. It would have been impossible for Sean to have avoided this news, to have avoided constant reminders of the thing he was still trying to forget the thing that he still had not found a way to admit or articulate. And as this media storm raged throughout the winter of 2012, Sean was still bouncing from place to place, still without a job or a sense of direction, and still selling drugs. In fact, the very week that Sandusky was arrested, Sean was hanging out in a local Applebee's, selling cocaine. He was surviving on drug money and favors from unfavorable people. And all of this was about to catch up with him in a big way. I was actually going to have something at the dermatologist, a cyst removed or something that morning, and they show up here knocking, wanting him. And I just, you could have just knocked me over with a feather, I had no idea. In May of 2012, two more police officers show up at Marianne's door. Someone Sean had sold drugs to, twice, was working with police as a confidential informant. This is a tactic called flipping, where cops start with lower-level street dealers and work their way up to the big fish. Well, that's the theory anyway, but it doesn't always go down like that. A lot of the time, people who get caught just turn over rival drug dealers or people they have a beef with or someone they simply know is dealing as well out of desperation to reduce their own sentences. Court documents show that someone Sean had been hanging around with set him up for a few of these controlled drug buys. In one of them, the stuff wasn't even cocaine. It was just baking powder. But in the eyes of the law, it didn't matter. Sean served eight days in the county jail before he was released on bail. When he got out, a police officer was again asking to speak with him. This time, it was Susano. Not about drugs, but again about Sandusky. Prosecutors were shoring up their case, getting ready for an early summer trial. 
So basically what the attorney general's office was doing was making sure that if the prosecution failed, if they got a not guilty, that they had another group of survivors teed up and ready to prosecute. Here's Jen Storm again. And so, yes, they were constantly combing for additional stories. They were interviewing people constantly. So even though they're like really close to going to trial, they're still working the case. Absolutely. Sean and Detective Sassano went to a church rectory for some privacy. He was still in trouble with the law and whatnot. But he did open up a little bit more. Marianne asked the detective what happened. And she says that he indicated that Sean was probably being groomed for abuse by Sandusky, but that Sean was still reluctant to talk about it. And anyway, he told her, it wouldn't be a good idea to go down this path with Sean, putting him on the stand when his brother had publicly praised Sandusky. He said, I just think he's a good kid. And, you know, he's gone down the wrong path for a little bit. But again, we don't need him. We have enough for the trial. So why put two different kids on the stand with two different versions, is what I was told. Two different kids with two different experiences. Detective Sassano declined to talk to me for this podcast, so we don't know exactly why he decided not to use Sean as part of the criminal case. But we do know that Josh had been on the record defending Sandusky, Marianne too, It's pretty clear that the defense would have jumped at that and would have pitted the two brothers against each other. If the uncomfortable reality of that stood out to investigators and prosecutors, then we can only imagine how much it stood out to Sean, too. Plus, Sean was still having a hard time talking about it. Of course, he was not the only victim who police interviewed that didn't end up being part of the criminal case. Jennifer Storm explains why. What ended up happening, obviously, was probably, and I will still say this, one of the most successful prosecutions of a serial predator that we've ever seen, right? I mean, it was it was done well, and they got the outcome that they needed. And so, unfortunately, <laughs> that shut it down. And what they then did is they turned on their heel and said to all of these young men that they kind of teed up for trial and charging and said, no, we're good. He's in jail for the rest of his life. We don't need you. And so they were used in a sense, but not in a sense that's not uncommon, um, but certainly could be incredibly re-traumatizing. Like when you think you're on the heels of justice and then that, that's taken from you, that's really hard. Once Sandusky was convicted and sent off to prison for a de facto life sentence, the job of the prosecution was done. He would never abuse another child. And in the eyes of the justice system and our public imagination, justice had been served. But that line, justice has been served, that's a cliche we toss around. The reality is that the criminal justice system is not really designed to serve justice. It's designed to punish the perpetrator for his or her crimes. Serving justice implies that victims are cared for or made whole. And they typically are not. Victims like Sean are often left behind without the infrastructure that they really need. It's a nearly impossible situation and the first of many failures that Sean would endure. At this point, to Marianne, a lot of Sean's behavior seemed like he was crying out for help, that he was trying to tell his parents. He just was unsure of exactly how to do it. 
there was one time, I guess, in particular when he was out, and I can remember it being a night that Josh was here visiting, and Sean came by and wanted to talk. And so I was outside in the driveway with him, and so was Michael. And I can remember Sean breaking down and crying and asking me what's wrong with him. And I just said, I don't know, but you have to tell me. And then he just, he he pulled back. I mean, he let loose for a little while, but then he pulled back. He never admitted anything. Honestly, in that driveway that day, I just felt this overwhelming sense of this is it. This is, this is the key. How do I get him to get it out, to let it out? With the news of Sandusky's arrest, members of the extended family kept saying things to Marianne, like, don't you remember that camp? Don't you think that was weird? Something happened. He changed. Marianne and Mike didn't know what to do. But everyone around Sean could see that his addiction was escalating. He looked bad, sickly, and the final straw happened in early August. Sean fell down the stairs of his parents' house and ended up in the emergency room. He was very much into into self-medicating. So we just said, you know, something needs to be done differently and you need to go and try to heal yourself one way or another or you're going to end up dead or in jail. Marianne, who is self-described as not very computer literate, enlisted the help of her sister, and they sat down together at the computer and typed a letter to the district attorney and to the judge. Dear Judge Sullivan, we are writing this letter in an effort to save our son Sean Sinisi, a lost soul at the age of 20. Marianne asked for Sean to be allowed into a program known as Drug Court, where sentences include mandated rehabilitation programs tailored to addicts like Sean. We know the court system is underfunded and overloaded with thousands of Sean, but Sean is our son and we want to help him. All who know Sean once knew a boy who was kind, gentle, loving, and fun. Knowing that Sean makes it so much harder for us to watch and understand this 2012 Sean, hard, angry, foul, mouth, lying. Our son is lost right now, and at times we wonder if we will ever get our loving son back. Or did more happen than what Sean has said during the time spent with Jerry Sandusky? We are asking you and the court to consider Sean to be given an option of a court-ordered in-house drug treatment program. Watching your child self-destruct in front of you is so heartbreaking. Please try to find a way to force Sean into treatment. Sean is loved and missed terribly by his family, and with help, he could be in in-house treatment. Please help us in our efforts to save Sean, and thank you for your time in reading this plea from us. Sincerely, Mike and Marianne Sinisi. You think, oh my gosh, he's going to get 30 days in a place. Gosh, all the in and out and using the drugs, and he's you know scraping them out of this house and that. 30 days away from this, this is it. And you're thinking that this is going to really make a difference. They have to rely on the system. And the system is giving a very bare bones approach to recovery. So it becomes this compliance band-aid. We just want to know that you complied with this so we can check a box and get you off our caseload. 
asking a 22-year-old kid who maybe has his GED, maybe not, to de-escalate a bipolar psychotic who just got off of a crack run. Are you crazy? If you're continuing to trigger that underlying neurobiological aspect of this disease, then there isn't true recovery and it can't be had. It, it's just still, you know, smoldering along. It's just a setup for failure and, and really it creates this sort of factory. You just spit out these patients and they go to five or six rehabs, they get the same experience and nothing ever changes. It escalated real quick. He flew off the handle, the, the counselor said. They had a bit of a screaming match and Sean said he wasn't gonna stay that he had no intentions on talking to her about anything. She just said, I know why you use and what your problems are, and they're all because of Jerry Sandusky. He just flipped. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, at Cedar Production, and in partnership with PenLive and Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. Sound design was done by Jesse Pearlstein, Alexander Ritchie, Martin Boutros, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our mixing and mastering engineer was Robin Wise. Our theme music and much of the score was composed by Pete Redman, with additional music by Alexander Ritchie, Jesse Pearlstein, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavie-Heaton, Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammontree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. To see extras like slideshows, interactive spaces, and written transcripts, visit our website at www.themayorofmapleavenue.com. 